Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Today, we're talking about why women lose self-trust and how to get it back. My guest is Sarah Dean, and she is one of my favorite people. I've had her on before to talk about perfectionism. And we met four years ago now at a entrepreneur experience event way down in San Diego. She's a keynote speaker, a business and leadership coach, and a Step Into Your Moxie Certified Facilitator. She is also the creator and host of the Shameless Mom Academy podcast, top rated with 5 million downloads. I actually fangirled on Sarah when she sat down to me at this event for lunch because I had listened to her podcast and loved it, and she lives in Seattle, which is super cool. Sarah's biggest passion is helping women own their space. After enduring her own identity crisis following the birth of her son, Sarah took her background in psychology, health, and wellness and rebuilt her identity one step at a time. She motivates and inspires women to stop shrinking 
and start shining every damn day. And every time she comes on the show, I learn so much. So we'll just get started. Sarah, welcome. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here again. I know. Me too. Because we were just chatting for like 20 minutes before. And then we were like, okay, okay, we need to record. <laughs> we should so, just need to record us chatting sometime. Like We can chat right? forever. <laughs> exactly. Well, so this is a big topic because I know that as I'm going through life, one of the biggest things that I worry about is rethinking decisions I've made or how I presented things or should I have done X, Y, Z? And what do people think of me? I describe myself as a recovering people pleaser. And I know it's tripped me up. And it's because I don't trust the decisions I make or I second guess them. So teach us all the things. Oh, my gosh. Self-trust is one of my favorite things to talk about. Like I've done over 800 podcast episodes at this point. And when I get asked to speak and they're like, what, what of your 800 episodes would you speak on? I'm always like, let's do the self-trust talk, the talk. So I love talking about this because especially with women, it is so relevant, but it's also so eye-opening. Once you hear and see the stuff I'm going to share in just a minute, you can't unhear and unsee it. Like it really opens your eyes to kind of how you show up in the world, how you interact with the world, um, and how that's working out for you or not working out for you. But also it takes a lot of the blame off of yourself. I think sometimes, not sometimes, often women really struggle with feeling like they don't trust themselves, feeling like they're struggling with confidence. And we carry guilt, shame, regret, resentment around all of that. And if we can recognize, oh, wait, it's because of the system. It's not because of me. Then we can show up really differently. And that I think changes everything. So can I share my like phases of losing self-trust over the course of one's life? Yes, I I need them. <laughs> okay. So when we're really little, and this is aimed primarily at women, because this is the you know, podcast with mostly women um, listeners. But I also want to say there's also phases for people who are socialized as men, for people who are transgender, non-binary, they're going to look a little different. But these there are phases for any gender that that I think are relevant. So for women specifically, though, When we're really little, from a very young age, we are told to do things that are pleasing to other people. So grandma gives you, and this is true story, grandma gives you a really lacy, super itchy dress for the holidays. And you are for, it's like, well, you got to wear it to visit Santa. And then you got to wear it to like Christmas dinner and Christmas Eve. And you have to wear it like four times. And the whole time you're like, but mom, it's just so itchy. And she's like, no, 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 like grandma wants to see it. So from a really young age, we're taught, please other people. Ignore that that's itchy. Ignore that you hate it. Be grateful. Be grateful grandma gave you a dress. We're also taught, go hug someone. So you're like with your relatives yeah. again over the holidays, go hug Uncle Larry. And you're like, I don't know, Uncle Larry's kind of creepy. Go sit on Uncle Tom's lap. And you're like, oh, Tom is really creepy. So we're told to override our own sensations where we have a feeling around something and just taught to like internalize it and ignore it because the norms are you do the things that grown ups say and you do the things that please other people and make other people comfortable. You know what's funny? I actually like experienced that the wrong way because Hank was so friendly and so like wanting to wrestle our friends, like our male friends and like would go sit on their lap and be around them all the time. And I was like, dude, uh, that's a <laughs> bit much like I'm sure he doesn't want to tickle you for the 17th. The <laughs> same thing. You're like, I know you're super excited, but like, don't. Cause right, that right. Weird, even though the people had never said anything to us. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really tricky. And 
depending on, and like you want your kids to have healthy boundaries. Like that's totally normal. So it is that fine line. Like, right. Do they want to tickle my kid for? Th- <laughs> oh my God. We have a picture of Hank at 18 months, like on the plane. Mike flew with him and he was in a middle seat and he is literally sitting on the lap of the random guy in the window seat looking out. And we were just like, dude, get some oh boundaries. I love that's amazing. <laughs> okay. So for women, can... I totally hear that too. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts at this really young age, really closely following and statistics show us that this is like at a disturbingly young age. Young girls are taught to think certain ways about their body and taught that certain bodies are better than others, that certain foods are good fruit foods, certain foods are bad foods. And this happens really young. Even if it's not explicitly coming from your parents giving you these messages, you just know in existing in the world that like, oh, having a belly, that's not too good. And you at seven, eight years old might be like, mom, like my belly is a little squishy. Or for me, it was like my belly, but it was also my thighs. Like my thighs touch. None of my friends have thighs that touch at a really young age. So we're from a really young age, we start to erode our self-trust around our body. Like, oh, but my body doesn't look like hers. There's something wrong with it, or it's not as good as someone else's. Food is either good or bad. So I can't have the donut because that's bad. I should just have the tuna fish. Like I spent a lot of my youth eating tuna fish and going to Weight Watchers with my mom, where everything was like you went to Weight Watchers with your mom, just like accompanying her because she was going, or like doing the program with my mom. How old were you? Thirteen. Well, my mom used to pay us to not let her eat donuts that we brought home when we were like 11. Like we would get money if we didn't let her eat the food, right? Like that messes you up. But I have, I mean, I know. And they're, they were conditioned too, right? They're part of the system. So she never talked about our bodies, but we definitely learned. Same. You know, my mom's not funny body. That I I saw. Yeah. Lila. um, So A, we talk about diet culture all the time. I interviewed her two weeks ago or no, two days ago. And we, of course, talked about alcohol and what she knows about it. But then we went over to like diet culture, the patriarchy and Taylor Swift did like, oh, my God, I love it. It was cracking me up. But um, when she was seven, she came to me. We talk at night in bed and she was like, Mom, my stomach doesn't go in. And I was like, honey, that's where your organs are. Like, literally, those are where your organs are. You, It's not supposed to go in. And she was really self-conscious. But you know what helped her? And I love this. Do you know that song by Jax, Victoria's Secret? Oh, yes. She knows every word to it. She actually sang it when I was that's interviewing her on the podcast. And it's just like. You know, the whole thing about like, he's a man that lives in Ohio making money off of girls like me, you know, teaching me about body issues. Like it's, you know, skinny and big boobs. I was like, you, whoever sang that song, I know she's famous now. I love it. Yes. Yes. 100%. And I love that you just mentioned that Lila was seven when she said that, because that shows like how young it is. And, and it also being raised by parents. So this isn't, you know, what your mom asked you to do 
isn't because she was a bad mom. It's because mm. any of us who had who were raised by parents in the 70s and 80s experienced this to some level, I feel like. I mean, I went to Weight Watchers, not with my mom, but at, before my wedding. And again, after I had Hank, like, I am still struggling with the yes, no conflict of diet culture in my life. It's yeah, it's so tricky. It's so, so tricky. So we have that piece where we're like not trusting our bodies. We're not trusting our instincts. And we're not trusting our bodies. We're not trusting that like we're good enough the way we are. We're not trusting that we're good enough to take up space. Like I need to lose 10 pounds before I can go get on a stage or I need to lose 30 pounds before I can go, you know, go swimming with my kid. Like all these different things that are related to this culture, the diet culture. Yeah. Then we go into a little bit older into adolescence and we are considering how can I look appealing, but not attract danger, which is yeah. so tricky to a young mind. And especially, I'm going to sound I'm a million years old, especially with the way girls dress these days. <laughs> I feel ridiculous saying that. that you sound a million years old, right? <laughs> I am saying it totally tongue in cheek. But Trust me. there is like this culture right now. And I'm so glad I didn't wasn't growing up in a culture of crop tops because it would have really been helpful for me. But it's like looking a certain way to attract people, but also knowing like rape culture is a thing. And so yeah. how are you towing that line that like I got to look good? That's how I get the attention from the people I want to get attention from. But also there's danger in looking certain ways or taking that too far, or maybe you haven't taken it too far and you might be fully like I am today in like a baggy black sweater and baggy jeans and still have someone be really harmful to you. So there's all sorts of ways that then we continue to have this erosion of self. And it around. goes back and forth, right? Like I completely agree. Rape culture is a thing and also shaming from other girls and boys yeah. and like, it's so loaded because you don't want to be targeted, but you want to be accepted. And also, like, dress codes for girls, I mean, are so steeped in that, hey, you don't want to attract attention or be seen by a slut. Like, why can boys wait, wear tank tops, but girls can't? Why can boys wear shorts, but girls skirts are oh, too short? Why can boys are like take a whole thing? I know. So it's. It's so fucking complicated and it's yeah. a mess. No wonder yeah. girls are screwed up and no wonder we were screwed up. Totally, totally. So as you evolve out of that, then you go into your early stages of career. And I'm thinking through any job I had where I walked through the door in any of those early roles in my work study jobs, in my first jobs out, out of college. And I assumed because I'd been taught this about authority that anyone who was already existing in that system knew more than me, had more education than me, more experience than me. They knew all the right things. And I accepted things that they said at face value. And in my early to mid 20s, I was working in a hospital system and I started recognizing like, why is this the truth in, in this organization? And like that truth that this organization is carrying is actually harmful to the patients. And like when I wanted to question things, it was very much like, sit down, little girl, you mm. don't, you aren't old enough to ask these questions. And also you haven't been here long enough and you're new in the field. And do you even know, this was actually said to me, it was, I got called into the CEO's office. He said, do you know the implications of what you're saying? And I was like, do you know the implications of what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, it yeah. was so ridiculous. And so we're, we're taught that 
the people who have been in the field longer than us, that our bosses, they know more and that we need to just be really subservient and do what they say and kind of, you know, follow without questioning. And so again, we have these hunches like that seems weird or inappropriate or harmful that we're like, well, I don't know, like I'm new or I'm young or like it's all men who are making these decisions. And so again, that trust, that self-trust just keeps taking these hits. Yeah. If we decide to be partnered, there's all sorts of, and I'm laughing because whenever I talk about this, I give an example um, that still makes me laugh. So when, if we decide to, you know, get married, whether that is or, or, or long-term relationships, so whether or not you're married, but you're living in a, you know, situation where it's you and a partner making daily decisions together, typically you're entering, and even if you're a staunch feminist like me, you're entering into a relationship where you're like, I'm not going to be like, I'm going to be the progressive person in this, in this role. And I found myself and still do as like the super feminist wife who somehow still makes dinner every night. <laughs> yeah. <me laughs> I'm like, too. wait a minute. <laughs> and this is not because my husband wouldn't make dinner. It's because I have just, I immediately accepted that like I would just do that. And my mother-in-law also strong, hardcore feminist for our wedding. She gave us a crock pot and five recipe books to go with the crock pot, but then said, like, these are for Sarah. <laughs> what oh, like yeah. For you to jointly make the meals. And so we have this, this messaging that is like, you need to keep taking care of people. You need to keep showing up in a certain way. You're the family manager, the household manager, the default parent, the de- all of this. And then if we go on to have children, so this is for my mom's listening, we've gone through all these phases of our self-trust being eroded. And then when we go into this season of, I call it newborn land, where we have a new baby, we have to automatically override our intuition over and over. So our intuition to keep our child alive is off the charts high, like anything to keep that child alive. And the cost of that is completely shutting down our intuition around how we take care of ourselves. So we Mm -hmm. ignore when we're tired. We ignore when we're hungry. We ignore when we have to go to the bathroom. We ignore, like, if we feel dirty and we haven't taken a shower in three days, just ignore that. Like, who has time? The baby has to eat. (laughs) And so we then have to, to keep the baby alive, we have to also override our intuition over the course of months, sometimes years, especially if you have multiple kids back to back. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't do these things to take a child. Like, you should absolutely keep your kid alive. But recognizing that over the course of your life, over decades of developmental stages, that you have had your self-trust eroded, you have been led into systems that do not make space for you to show up and ask questions and challenge authority. And then if you've had a child, you've like forgotten to ever pee when you have to pee, we can start to see how your connection to your own intuition can be almost non-existent if you haven't paid attention to where that has been eroded over time. Yeah. And one thing I see with so many women who are in early sobriety, one of the first things that you need to do is you're going to be incredibly tired. You just are. If you've been drinking, alcohol messes up your sleep so much. I hadn't had a good night of sleep in years, like literally years. You're, which you remove alcohol and everybody's like, I'm supposed to feel better. Well, your body is healing from that toxic substance. It takes a while. So you feel like you've been hit by a bus. You automatically cannot keep going at the rate you were going to knock yourself unconscious or numb out to tolerate it. So you need to do less. And it's really uncomfortable for women because they say, Oh my God, I'm so tired. I want to take a nap. And I'm like, take a nap. 
Like it, the difference is like we're used to I'm tired drink. It's a stimulant. I, you know, X, Y, Z, I can't rest when I'm tired because I'm overcompensating or our life has been set up in a way where I do everything, even though I work full time or I'm with the kids full time because my husband has a job. And so one of the biggest hurdles that women go through is trusting their body, like actually yeah. listening to it. I'm hungry to eat. I'm tired, sleep. I'm yeah. irritated walk away and go get some time for yourself. And then they feel guilty, right? They're like, oh, I couldn't possibly sleep. I feel so selfish. And I'm like, can we reframe that to I'm tired, I'm sleeping because I'm taking care of myself? Like, it's a completely different approach, but it's hard to do. Yes, totally. And I think that it's also really, really uncomfortable to have if alcohol has been a coping mechanism or a numbing mechanism, then when that is removed and you are stuck listening inward when you haven't done that before or haven't done it in a long time, that reconnection to intuition is really uncomfortable and maybe painful. And like you're actually having to feel things and recognize habits and recognize like, oh, like this is the space where I used to escape. And now I have to like, just be here and practice being here while I'm feeling something that's hard, whether that is feeling tired or, feel, you know, whatever that, you know, feeling like it was a hard day at work or hard time in a relationship or parenting. Um, and that is so, so uncomfortable because aside, like aside from the removal of alcohol, making that really challenging and different, it's also that that is just uncomfortable for women in general. And so if you've been masking with using alcohol over time, then you are, it's going to be maybe that much harder to have to sit and click and listen to that intuition. What often happens when people hear all these phases, then they get really mad because they're like, hold on. Like, I didn't realize I'd been socialized in a way that made me like ignore my own self. And yeah. so sometimes then you can get really curious. Oh, I want to start listening inward. I want to recognize like, what do I think? What do I like? What am I actually interested in? I had a client who came to me when her kids were 20 and 22, her boys, and they had just moved out of the house. And she said, I don't know what to make for dinner because I don't know what food I like. So Bad. like not tapping into her intuition for that many years. She's like, I don't know. I only made food for them. I don't know what I like to eat. And I think that that's, you know, what you're talking about as well, where you have that space and then suddenly you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. And it's really yeah. hard and uncomfortable to listen in, in more. When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective 
than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi is being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I dot com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48, so if you are going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep, it is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah. No. And I'm sure men do it too, right? They're taught to like push down their emotions, to not admit when they feel anxiety, to, you know, my husband said to me something a while ago um, when he was really uncomfortable or hated, didn't like his job or whatever it was. And he was like, yeah, I read something that resonated with me that my family would rather I fall off the white horse and die than step off of it. And I was like, no, but like, that's what they've internalized too. So yeah, it's yes. And I, there's definitely, yeah, totally. Because there definitely is, um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, like it's across genders that it's the phases can look a little different. But that socialization is across genders in terms of having to show up in certain ways, subscribed by culture that are often in avoidance or in direct conflict with your actual identity. So one of the things I talk a lot with women about, and I actually, it's interesting because I talked about this on the pod, I still talk about this on the podcast over the course of many years now, but I've also been talking about it with my business coaching clients. I've been talking about it when I go into organizations and work with teams. And what's been so fascinating to me is the things that I thought were just specific to pockets of moms, because that's who I was serving, are very relevant to women in leadership or very relevant to, you know, um, a team, a leadership team where there's only one female on the team. So it's so mm-hmm. interesting, the things that show up in one place, how they show up in other places and like the same there's not a difference um oh my god i have to ask you have yeah. you do you know who christy coulter is yes i haven't read the book yet but i'm oh my god you her. have 
you have to interview her. Have you interviewed her? No, it's on my list. So she follows me on, again, I'm going to sound 85 years old. She follows me on LinkedIn. (laughs) Young people are like, oh my God, she talks, she's talking about LinkedIn. Goodbye. LinkedIn (laughs) is so good. But I, now that I'm at a corporate, I don't do shit on LinkedIn. Oh, I'm dying to read the book because of the work that I do in corporate, not, but I'm not actually working in, you know, I don't work in corporate every day. I go in and serve corporate teams. Um, so yes, dying to read the book. So (laughs) I've interviewed her twice. She's a friend of mine. I will link to the episodes. She did one on working, drinking in a male dominated workplace. Um, and the second one was on her book, Exit Interview. Um, which is amazing about her 12 years at Microsoft, but she literally talks about, I mean, it was amazing. There's this one section where it was like dress to be attractive, but not to emphasize your boobs, hips, waist, butt, butt, yes. whatever. It's Lean the same forward thing and as smile. Culture. Like yeah. it's corporate. It's, yeah. Like look at the business triangle, forward eyes, nose, but never at the social triangle, mouth, nose, whatever. Like, She's like, you can't do it. It's too contradictory. It was, I was just like, yep. And my husband didn't get it. Like I read it to him and he was like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. You don't do this. And I'm like, I did it every fucking day of my life. Yeah. It's so interesting. So when I talk, when I talk about this in rooms full of women, exclusively in rooms full of women at, at the corporate level, they always say, we need to have the men in the room. Like, the men don't know that this is what women go through. And so when they step into a boardroom and they're the only female there, that how can we make sure that that person actually gets to take up all the space that is due to them? Yeah. Because of how they've been socialized. Same thing for how can we make space for like a man to be sad at work and not just like angry yeah. and a jerk. So having to make space for people to be human versus hold, upholding a gender role or upholding socialization that does not allow them to freely express themselves is really, really significant. And when we look at that in the workplace, it's really imperative that genders understand it from other genders' perspectives. And so when I have men in the room, they're like, oh, wow. And they're it's interesting because they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And some of them are a little bit like, oh, yeah, like I can see how that happens some places, but not here. Like, There's a lot of like, it's over there. Yeah. But they also, if they have daughters, they're like, oh, I don't want, (laughs) oh, it's one of those, like, I have daughters, so I would never. (laughs) No, it's more, they actually are more receptive because if it's not pointing fingers at like, you're doing this as a dad, but I'm saying society is doing this to your daughter. They're actually open to it because it's not saying you're doing this, but in a work environment, they are more like, we don't do that here. (laughs) So it's, it's kind of two different angles that I most commonly see, of course, exceptions to all of that um, across the board, but it's super, super interesting. And I agree. I think a lot of men don't, because they haven't experienced it, it's really hard to understand. And same Well, in terms of trusting your intuition, you have to be so careful Mm -hmm. about coming, making sure that you override your conditioning to be people pleasing or to make sure people like you or to smile, because we're always taught to smile without being aggressive or a bitch or too much or thinking too much of yourself like you know in christie's section which i just loved it was like don't take notes because it seems secretarial but do take notes so your contributions are documented like it's like oh my god so good it's so interesting when i'm in circles of i'm in multiple circles i'm I'm in many circles of that are all exclusively (laughs) women but i'm in a handful of circles that are 
like mostly women with a few men. And it's really interesting when I take up a lot of space, as I do as an extroverted speaker, (laughs) when I take up a lot of space, women are really typically open and receptive. And I'm trying, like, I don't try to take the oxygen out of the room, but it is interesting how often the men are, they appear to be very passively listening. They never have follow-up questions. And they're not like, they don't want to grab my ear at the end of the conversation. Like women yeah. will come up to me over and over and over like, oh my gosh, that thing you said. But it's interesting that men don't, and, and if I'm tr- doing co- training in a corporate setting, they will come up to me. But if I'm in community circles, um, mm-hmm. they like don't have fault. They're like, they don't have use for the space that I take up. And so this can be like in the sports environment, or this can be in like a school parent association environment. Like it's just really interesting to watch and I can tell I'm like they do not like me they're threatened by me they're intimidated by me they don't know what questions to ask me they think I'm going to disagree with everything they say and I at a certain point I'm like if they don't have the courage to like come and have a chat I don't have time or use for them yeah (laughs) yeah got bigger fish to fry so then I'm always very appreciative to the ones who do which there always are like you know exceptions to that where people are open and do want to engage kind of across (laughs) across the lines and that's amazing. It's incredible. Um, and that's how we can accomplish great things together. Yeah. We've been taught what we should do, right? That word. My favorite thing with women I'm talking to is they're like, but I should do X. And I'm like, I want you to finish that sentence because the finishing part, the end of that sentence is I should do X, but what I really want to do is Y, you know, and nobody including myself, usually finishes that sentence, right? You just stop at the should. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about some ideas, how we can start to like plant seeds for self or replant seeds for self-trust. Because yes, I think this, this is where we can get into some of that should territory. And I want to give this very big disclaimer that none of this is like, take these 18 steps and implement them today. And Bigger disclaimer that if you're doing something that's working well for your recovery, do not take my advice as a non-expert in addiction and recovery (laughs) and like decide to do what Sarah said instead of what's already working. So obviously, whatever's working in recovery, that's the priority. Some of this will overlap probably in terms of what people might be doing in terms of prior, uh, in terms of um, recovering and in terms of sobriety. But there's definitely things that we can do to reroute ourselves and start to listen inward and then figure out how do we listen inward in order to then show up differently in the world and externalize ourselves to the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. So do you want me to go through some of those? Options? Oh, yeah. Okay. So the first is know thyself. And when I talk about know thyself, it's recognizing where all these phases where we lost self-trust, where do those overlap for you? Where you are like, oh my gosh, like I, I remember that phase and I remember that phase and I remember that phase. And oftentimes the women I work with, they're like, I, all of those, all of those are relatable. <laughs> and so recognizing, okay, so I'm here in this space because this is the system. This is the patriarchy. The system has worked exactly how it's intended to work. Mm-hmm. This is where I come from. And now what am I going to do about that? I'm going to recognize here's where my self-trust was broken and I'm not going to stand for that. And then recognizing even who the people are that have participated in that and what are your current relationships with them 
And are those relationships that you could should con- continue to uphold or uphold in the way that you're currently upholding them and currently navigating yeah. those relationships? So sometimes that is recognizing like this person who's been in my inner circle for maybe my whole life shouldn't be in my inner circle. They might still be in my circle, but maybe on another outer ring. Um, yeah. Or maybe like there's firm boundaries around like they can be here in this capacity, but not that capacity. Or maybe they're just out all together. So recognizing like who actually deserves a seat at the table based on their participation in my life up to this point. And do you recognize that based on emotions, based on the way they make you feel, based on their actions? Because what I hear most from women, which is incredibly hard, is a lot of those people are family, you know? Yeah. So I can give you two examples of each of my parents. So so when I look at my self-trust being eroded over time, my self-trust was eroded by things that happened with my mom. So my mom, we talked about diet culture. My mom was chronically on a diet. She went to Weight Watchers my whole life. She was always trying new things. Like she always ate separately than my sister and I, like, cause she was having cabbage soup and my sister and I were having macaroni and cheese. So my trust was broken just in growing up that way. Now my mom is an amazing mom. My, she's yeah. my biggest champion and cheerleader. Like she was a victim of her own situations and circumstances around diet culture. So I'm not going to be like, mom, Back in 1982, when you were like doing the white fish diet and all you ate was white fish every day, like I have no use for you now. Like that's no, no. And 1982 was tough, man. Right. I, yeah. I, I feel bad for any woman yeah. who was in the workplace and dealing with Jane Fonda and God yes. knows what, right? Yes. So there, like that, I can look in and I can be like, okay, here's what happened. My mom is an amazing mother, an incredible leader in my life, a really important person to me. Like she can look back and roll her eyes the same way I do. We recognize now that there was harm in that. Like we can move on. My dad, on the other hand, who left my family right before Christmas when I was four, had just, yeah, just just turned four years old. Um, he, over the course of my life, uh, eroded trust in a lot of different ways, but always showed up as like friendly, fun guy, but like not a great dad. So he's like, good friend, not a great dad. As I got older and older, he was not able to repair trust. He was not able to take responsibility. And it shifted more and more over time in terms of like blaming and having like weird ideas about this dynamic of our relationship that was definitely not like a father-daughter relationship. Um, And it over time created more and more harm. And it was deeply impacting my mental health. So at a certain point, I had to say, hey, if we're going to have a relationship, which I would love to have. And I would love for you to have a relationship with my child. But there's a couple lines in the sand that I need to draw. And these are like, this is just how it has to be. I'm going to leave the ball in your court in terms of how you want to move on from here. And he never spoke to me again. I tried to reach out a couple times when there was some health crisis stuff happening. And he again was just like, his wife would kind of communicate for him. And at a certain point, I had to recognize that I am chasing something that is only creating harm. So Mm -hmm. I have to be okay with the fact that this person will, I will, even if he comes back to me, I'll never trust him. So it'd still be this very like arm distance relationship. And what am I losing in my life by spinning and circling and, and ruminating on this for years and years and years at this point? I had to make peace with the fact that I probably would never talk to him again. And that that was probably the best thing to happen. And that's what ended up happening. He died a year and a half ago and I had not, I, didn't hadn't spoken to him. I'm so sorry. That's so hard. And you deserve better. That's the hard thing, right? Like when that stuff happens to you, you 
deserve, everyone deserves a parent who loves them and supports them and champions them. And a lot of people don't get that. Right. And I can look back and see that if I had made concessions for him to stay in my life, the way things had been in order for him to have a relationship with me, with my son, that I know with 100% certainty that there would have been constant stress and drama in that relationship. And that would have been something that took up so much space in my life over the course of those 10 years that we didn't speak. So there was a huge cost to determining like, where do you get to be in my circle? Mm -hmm. And also I can look back and recognize that keeping him closer in the circle would not have been more helpful. It would not have served the purpose that I would was hoping that it would serve. So I think that's where you have to like listen in and recognize like if I make the concession, then what's the cost? Yeah. Um, so giving people chances for do-overs, I think 100%. But then looking at like, at a certain point, you can put some conditions on that. Um, yeah. And if anyone's that. listening, I have done a ton of different episodes. I'm not the expert, but on on boundaries, on codependency, on relationships with narcissists. Yeah. Uh, all those things, because this shit is hard. Yes. And it's so hard to see it from the outside when you're in it. And so I've been able to see it from the outside over the court, you know, for a long time now. Um, over the course of those early on in that first 10 years when we had no contact, I was still in it where I couldn't see outside. Like I was still like, maybe I should try one more thing. Maybe if I try this, maybe if I try it from this way, maybe if I reach out on this platform versus that, <laughs> maybe if it's a Facebook message versus a text, you know? Um, yeah. So when you're really in it, it can be really tricky. But then when we had more and more distance, I could, that distance actually really, really helped me. Yeah. Um, and then doing some learning on my own around like, you know, intergenerational trauma and parenting and narcissistic yeah. parents and all those different things, um, you know, made a huge difference. And so then I was able to really kind of solidify my perspective when I had that space. Yeah. So that's the first thing is knowing thyself, recognizing where do you come from? How did systems influence you? How did parenting influence you? How did, you know, other people outside of your household that were immediate in your circle influence you. And that can be, you know, even your school, your teachers, um, your college experience, all of that. The, the second thing to do is after you've recognized all of this about where you've come from and kind of what's impacted you, then turning inward to really start to pay attention and find evidence around who you are at your core. So never mind all these ways that you've been socialized. And I don't mean to be flippant and say like, it's just so easy to ignore them because it's not like it's going to still impact who you are. Like this you is up. the work, right? This is why I love yes. therapy, therapy yes. and coaching. Totally. But finding that evidence that's, that supports who you are at your core, what you stand for, and then letting that dictate the direction that you want to go. And that, I mean, I can say it in one sentence, but that is not one sentence worth of work. Like that yeah. can be months, years, decades worth of work. But it's turning inward to listen, to recognize like, oh, I've been, and I always use the example of like lawyers and CPAs who I don't ever meet lawyers who, or CPAs who've been at their job for more than like two years who are like, yeah, like it's going great. I love it. It's so, it's like soul filling. They're all like, oh my God, like how many days till retirement? (laughs) No accountant is like, can't wait for tax season again. Like they're all just like buying time to be done. And if you're a lawyer or CPA who loves your job, thank you because we need you. So when we look, listen inward, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing. How do I feel about that thing? Or I've always wanted to do this other thing. I mean, Casey, you're such a great example. Like, 
<laughs> I'm do, you know, on this corporate track, it's going great, but huh, there's this other thing I'm really curious about. There's this other gift I think I might have. And not even just podcasting for you, by the way, but like you're like singing, doing your rock band. Now you're a rock star. <laughs> I'm so nervous. I'm per- I'm performing on stage on Saturday. Oh my, on Saturday you are? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So every time I like, this is you, what, this is the work showing up for you. Like I go to Instagram and I'm like, oh my God, there's Casey doing another thing that's like absolutely terrifying that I would never do. Oh yeah. So terrifying. Yeah. But I, I, I texted my best friend and I was like, hashtag bucket list, hashtag YOLO, hashtag we're not getting any younger. Oh my God. You're going to have so much fun. And yeah. that's like, it's recognizing like that evidence of who you are at your core and what you stand for and how you want to show up or how you want to, you know, show up for your kids and your audience, all those different things. And then like that becomes the indicator, those become the indicators in terms of what, where you want to go and how you want to make decisions and whether or not you say yes, when someone puts this opportunity to get up on stage in, in front of you and sing your heart out. So the um, one thing I will say just for people listening, this work is incredibly hard to do if you're drinking. And that's because you almost can't listen to your intuition. You can't figure out who you are when you're numbing out and then waking up and feeling sorry for yourself and hating yourself and beating yourself up. And it's really hard to listen to your own emotions because you blame yourself for being hungover or drinking too much or saying things you don't want to. And and also when you get in arguments with your spouse or have a legitimate resentment or a legitimate boundary and you've been drinking because so many of us did it every night or do it every night, they don't take you seriously. They're like, yeah, let's talk when you're not drinking. Like they use it as a weapon against you. So this is the really good work. And this is the work that will set you up for happiness and success and confidence in the future. And you need to stop drinking first and you need to get support for that. And I say that because I experienced that firsthand. I went to therapy for years when I was drinking and like talked about everything but my drinking and was in the same cycle constantly because you don't have the emotional space to do the work. So, you know, uh, by the way, I talk about with drinking, there are two kinds of problems. There's the aftermath problems, which are um, hangovers, feeling ill, feeling less happy than you would, less emotionally stable because alcohol messes with your serotonin and your dopamine and spikes your cortisol. So, you feel more anxious, you feel more depressed, you feel less happy, you feel less content, less positive, and you're hungover, and you're blaming yourself, and you're losing four hours every night. Those are the aftermath problems. They get resolved super, super quickly. I mean, within a month, within six weeks. But then you have all the underlying problems, which is what we're talking about now with self-trust and relationships and boundaries and what you want and who you are. Those are the aftermath problems. And those are the things I always think about are the reason, the things you don't have to think about when you're drinking, what you're using alcohol as a coping mechanism for. And that's the hard work, but that's the good work. And that's where you need to bring in a therapist, a coach, podcasts, amazing books, like, but you get to move past it. Like I did that work in the full year, year and a half after I quit drinking. And I finally got to put it to bed and move on with my life. So 
just to jump in, I think this work is hugely, hugely important. And you can't do it when you're drinking. So that's yet another benefit of stopping. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy, but one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I immediately thought of our mutual friend, Laura Cathcart Robbins, mm. but a handful of other people. I've had the huge privilege of getting to know a number of people in the sober community um, through doing my podcasts and just having people come to me and wanting to share stories. And um, which is then extended to me, like, attracting people in recovery outside the podcasting world. So I feel like I'm like collecting incredible friends in recovery everywhere I go. And what's been so fascinating to me is the level of clarity and ease around who they know they are and how they show up in the world. And I know that does not come easily, but it's this gift from recovery that like my friends in recovery are the most self-actualized and centered grounded people that I know. And so just to reiterate what you're saying is like, yes, it's a process, but like you are going to know your shit and know why you, why you know your shit and like upside down and inside out because you go through that work in a really unique way that I think really puts it. And most people never do. They stay on the surface, just totally treading water. And not really? getting honest and not getting deep. I love people in recovery because they've done the work. You're right. They know who they are. You have to, but also they are really funny. They've got fantastic stories. They're super used to getting vulnerable and connecting. They yeah. like really don't tolerate surface conversations and small talk. And for people like you and me, that's amazing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's incredible. So yes, like it feels, it probably initially feels, well, not probably like it feels like you're being naked in front of yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that is not easy work for anyone. Um, but like the rewards that come out of that, that carry, that you carry with you forever are, you know, irreplaceable and, and invaluable. I think also part of this that's really important is as you're going through this and you're turning inward and you're listening and you're learning about yourself and learning about who you are and kind of where you want to go with that, there's this really incredible opportunity to own and embrace all the ways that you're unique. And again, going through recovery, I think you do have the opportunity to look back at life circumstances and really pinpoint like, oh, like this thing 
made me feel a certain way or impacted me in a certain way. And that maybe contributed to the way that I use substances. And so there's a lot of opportunity to connect dots in different ways and recognize how things have impacted you. And sometimes you can then attribute that to this is why I'm really good at this, or this is why I have this quirk, or this is why like I have this unique strength. And I think that when we do that, like as someone who and I've talked about on my podcast a lot, um, has m- multiple mental health situations, <laughs> anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, and knowing that has allowed me to really embrace like these are the things I'm really good at. And here's where I'm like a little offbeat <laughs> and mm-hmm. people are either going to love it or hate it about me, but like I'm super cool with it. <laughs> and so yeah. and we, I talked about like taking up space in the room and like some guys are just like, that's a lot. <laughs> Dude, that's what I love about you. Like, just smart, to the point, vulnerable, real. I love that shit. So I think it's thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And I think that that takes recognizing like, my value in the world, and the way that I bring Sarah Dean to the world is unique in these ways. And no system gets to make me quiet those things or hide those things or mask those things, I will go find or build, which I've mostly built them, the systems that will allow those things to shine. Yeah. And I think that that is a huge part of turning inward. Um, and that can be so eye-opening and daunting and scary, but also, oh my gosh, so liberating. Keeping going down our list. This one I think is a really important invitation. And I'm this will look different. And I'm sure you're going to have something to say about this one. Casey, but this will look different for everyone based on where they're at in their journey. And especially in a journey that involves recovery or that involves, um, you know, substance use or struggles around sub- substance use or addiction. So another part of seeding our self trust and starting to grow those roots is owning. Cre- so I call it courageous truths, but creating your courageous truths or owning your courageous truths and really looking at that as a self-trust resume. So when I'm doing presentations and trainings on this, I always have people create their own self-trust resume, which is fun and fascinating and really, really eye-opening for people. But one of the steps in that process is creating a list of your courageous truths. And when we talk about courageous truths, it's owning the things in our life that have happened by choice or by chance that have impacted who we are today. And the first time I did this with clients, it was totally accidental. Um, I had, I like quickly and casually with a group of famous moms I was working with in a, our community. I was like at the end of a call one day, I was like, I want you to just make a list between now and our call next week of your courageous truths. Like the things that you've gone through in your life that have made you who you are today, et cetera, et cetera. And if you want to go ahead and post them on our Facebook group. And then I got off the call, went about my day. The next morning I get up and people have started sharing their courageous truths list on the, in the Facebook group. And they're like lists that are like 30 items long that are people's deepest, darkest, hardest stories. And also they're like brightest, shiny, most exciting stories. And Mm -hmm. I'm reading them. I'm like sitting in bed crying and they kept pouring in over the course of a week. And when we got on our next call, everyone was like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever done in my life. Like they were like, I can write my own story in a completely different way now because I'm looking at this list of where I've had to be courageous in my life. Again, by chance or by choice, like there's things that we have to navigate that we choose for ourselves. I want to run a marathon. It's going to be hard. I'm choosing that courage versus chance where I, you know, 
something happened with a parent, a family member, a job, like freaking COVID, (laughs) you know, Um, where by chance we've had to be courageous. And all of those are putting us in a position of being able to create a narrative that gives us power. And so when we're thinking about that in response to or in the context of struggling with addiction or being in recovery, owning that this part of your story is such a huge and important piece and also something that you can frame with a lot of pride. And I think, and I want you to talk on that because I think that that might be counterculture to say like, talk about no, addiction with pride. I I love that. And that's something that is one of my favorite things to do. A lot of women are like, I have so much shame or this is so embarrassing or, you know, I don't want people to know this about me. And, you know, part of me is like, okay, you've been socialized to think that becoming addicted to an addictive substance is some personal weakness. It's not. The substance is working as designed and anyone who drinks enough or drinks enough, um, and often enough will eventually go down the road of some version of alcohol use disorder, uh, mild, moderate, severe, you name it. And there are so many reasons that women or anyone drink and drink more. It can be uh, your social circle. It can be because you're compensating for um, social anxiety, for ADHD, for anything. It can be just because the person you married drinks a ton or your parents drank a ton or I played on the rugby team in college. I am not blaming the rugby team, but that is like a crash course in (laughs) unhealthy binge drinking. So yeah, and it was fun. But you know, it taught me that blackouts are funny and throwing up is normal and you know, whatever. Um, So one of the things that that I truly believe, and I love the question from why is this happening to me, to how is this happening for me, you probably won't see it in the beginning. But you could go through the rest of your life after you quit drinking saying, why did this happen to me? This is awful. I am a victim. I am unhappy with this. Or you can say this in some way happened for me because if this is how I feel. If I had not gotten to the point where my drinking had gotten to the point where I felt doomed and, and was scared and knew I had to quit and try forever and couldn't moderate. I never would have done the work that we're talking about. I would have never gotten honest and real. I would have skated through life in a very surface way using happy hour as the highlight of my day and vacations as a way to reward myself for doing a job that wasn't right for me and gave me anxiety. I never would have left corporate. I would have been too scared. I never would have started a podcast. I never would have gotten into coaching. I never would have met incredible people like you and and just learned so much. None of this would have happened if I hadn't struggled with alcohol and quit drinking and done the work. And, you know, it's just a very different way of looking at life. And I know so many women who have quit drinking and then just done such incredible things. I mean, write novels and my best friend started a bookstore and, you know, done all these incredible things because they, they're no longer occupied and sort of letting nights and weekends and months and years slip away. So you can reframe it as something 
that you're proud of. In my mind, I, I always am like, yeah, a lot of people drink. That's cool. It's everywhere in society. It is addictive. It does cause cancer, but it's a really hard thing to walk away from. And you should be proud of it in the same way that people who run marathons, that's really hard. And they put their 26.2 sticker on their car for the next 20 years, even though they do it, which I love, but you know, they talk about it constantly. You Until know, they have it, to get a new car and then they're like, oh, now I'm no longer a marathon. <laughs> oh, no. Then they buy a new sticker because they did it and God bless them, right? You know, good. But yeah, it's something to be proud of. It's yeah. hard to do and you are a badass. Yes, yes, 100%. The last seed I want to offer is um, really embracing and identifying as someone. And I think that we have, you know, this unique opportunity to, decide who we are and then like label it and then be that person. And anyone can do that. You don't have to wait for someone else to be like, oh, you're really good at this. You can just be like, yeah, hey, like I'm good at this. Or and even if you're newer to that, you can still be that thing. So for example, when I first started, like I got one speaking gig and a friend of mine who was a life coach was like, so you have to put speaker on your email signature now. And I was like, well, I mean, I spoke once. But I also owned a gym at the time and taught boot camp class every single morning and was yelling and screaming and leading. And she's like, you're a speaker. Yeah, I was like, oh, I thought I had to wait till someone like gave me a certificate or something. So mm-hmm. we can at any moment we get to kind of choose who, what we want, how we want to frame who we are in the world. And like in ethical ways, of course, but um not saying that like we're, you know, a CPA and then messing up people's taxes because we actually don't have the right training. But one of the things I think that can be really helpful in grounding yourself, growing those roots is identifying as someone who is an action taker and a decision maker. And when you identify as someone who's an action taker and a decision maker, we get out of the being stuck in rumination. And I will raise my hand very, very high, which I'm doing on my Zoom screen right now, but very high to say, I am someone who spent my entire life stuck in rumination. I still find myself stuck there all the time. And when I am taking action and making decisions, then I'm not sitting there spinning. And so I literally have a post-it note on my computer it's buried under three other post-it notes, right? But I was going to pull it up and show you. But it says I'm an action taker and a decision maker. It's been on my computer for like four or five years, probably. Because when I'm sitting here spinning about something that's not working in my business, I just have to make a decision. Like, are you going to yeah. do A or B? And regardless of the outcome, you can figure it out. Because you know what? You've been running a business for 20 years and you've always figured it out. So when we're looking at tapping into our self-trust, being an action taker and a decision maker and trusting that there's not a right or wrong decision in most cases, And that no matter which decision we can make, another decision will present itself. And we get to take action on that one based on where we're at in that moment. And that creates momentum where we're not sitting and spinning in a place of shame or guilt or confusion or frustration or just inaction where we feel like we don't have control over our own lives. And in the context of sobriety and recovery, if you can own an honor, and I don't want to make it sound trite and like it's so easy, but if you can own an honor that you're an action taker and a decision maker, then you can every second be deciding like, what's the action you're taking in this moment? And it can be a different action than one second ago. I love that because I also hear from high achieving women, I work with lots of women who are doing all the things and doing all the things well. And they write me or I'm talking to them and they say, I can do everything else in my life. Why can I not get a handle on this? Why is this the one thing that I am 
quitting on myself over and over again or failing. And first I say, there are a million reasons why this is incredibly hard, right? It's addictive. It's everywhere. You've been socialized. You have a lot of limiting beliefs around what it means. It does immediately affect you and both relax you and stimulate you. Like there are all these reasons why it's incredibly hard to actually just decide and move forward. And at the same time, you do a million other things. And when you do them, you typically gather resources, you gather support, you put your intention out there in the world, you take the first step, and then you take the uh, next step, even if it's scary. And those skills can be brought to bear in the same way when you're quitting drinking, right? If you decide you're like, oh my God, I've been able to run five marathons. Well, the first time you ran a marathon, you did not just go out and run it. You probably joined a running group. You might have bought a course on like couch to 5k. You read some blogs. You read some books. You probably had a trading plan. You were terrified, but you didn't just say, I'm going to run a marathon. I've decided why did I fail? And so one of the things I like to help women do is just break it down. And in terms of being an action taker and a decider, like just do the next right thing. You are deciding every minute to take a step towards what you want in life or a step back. And it doesn't mean you have to look forward for the rest of your life. Like just do the next right thing. If you are tired, nap. If you are overwhelmed, say no. If you are um, scared about going somewhere and drinking, don't go. Just tell them you're yeah. sick. You know, like if you feel alone, reach out to a group. Like just do the next right thing. And that is taking action. Yes, yes, I love that. It's also, I think, a really helpful way to get out of looking back. Um, and I think sometimes when we're stuck in a place of rumination, or if we're stuck in a place where there's, you know, some guilt, shame, regret, it's real, our default can be looking backwards. And like, if only I did this, and I wish I did that, and blah, 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 like really, and that keeps us stuck. And this is forward and momentum. Even if yeah. we screwed up 10 seconds ago, it's forward and it's momentum. Like we don't have to keep revisiting the thing that makes us feel awful because that's not really serving a purpose. Like if we did harm, own the harm, take, you know, make your amends, but like keep the ball rolling forward. Yeah. Um, I think that piece is really significant too. Yeah. Hi there. If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it, or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step -step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one -on -one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings, or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one-day-at-a-time approach. Instead, 
It's a step-by-step -step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time and I would love to see you in the course. And I also believe in terms of rebuilding self-trust and you tell me, the more you do things that honor yourself and trust your intuition, the more confident you will be. Like the first time you do anything, it is going to be uncomfortable. It is going to be scary. Mm. That's a muscle to be built, to set a boundary and then sit there and be like, oh my God, is this going to be okay? She hasn't texted me back in an hour. Is she going to hate me? What are they going to say? Just sitting in that, yeah. oh my God, that's hard and that's brave. But what you're going to figure out is the world didn't end or mm -hmm. that person isn't your person, or it was awkward, but you move forward, you know? Like when you have your performance on Saturday night and you're going to spend all day being like, why did I say yes? Yeah. And then the yeah. second it's over, you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't wait to do it again. I am regretting inviting so many people. I'm well, and it's not just like, oh my God, I'm scared. It's not good. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to drive to Columbia City. The song is like four minutes long. It's a waste of their time. Like, oh, I feel awkward. So a friend of mine's coming over from Bainbridge. Is it even going to be fun? But like, you know, it'll be great. And they can watch the rest of the show. And how much do you, time do you get to like go watch live music for free and see a bunch of hacks like beaming right totally and i think that this is such a great example so i think that like a couple different things that could happen like you could it could get over be done and you're like that was the most amazing thing i can't wait to do it again and like be riding this like performance high for a few days maybe a week or two or you could get done and be like i don't know I, that felt weird whatever but now i know and i'm so proud that i did that like i stepped in and did this really scary thing or it could be really fumbly and you would be like, yeah, like, I'm just not made for that. It's not my thing. Yeah. And I always say, like, worst case scenario, then that's part of the narrative that you get to build however you want to say. The other thing I tried after all these other things was I decided that I wanted to get up on stage and I wanted to sing this song. And this is what happened. And this is what I learned. Like, you get to own that story in whatever way you want. So there's you can't lose in making that decision and in deciding to go forward with it and in staying in, in forward momentum, because you, no matter how it goes in the next minute, you get to decide what you're going to do with that. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's going like, to be great. So I know you're going to want to do it again. But. <laughs> well, I've done it like a couple of times. The first time I did it off topic was I took lessons from the same guitar teacher who's amazing when I was 28 to 32. And then I came back to him when I was 47. So 15 years later, um, so I'd done the jam when I was 28. And by the way, I was, I wish I was 28 again. But the first time, I mean, who doesn't, right? Right. Just, yeah, the past couple of years have been fantastic, but 28 was pretty cool too. Um, <laughs> I got on stage for the first time when I was 28 and 
I had this like out of body experience where my legs started shaking and I was playing and I literally could not stop my like it was out of it was like a physical reaction. Mm-hmm. And it was so weird. But I was like, when's the last time I did something that actually terrified me that much? And yeah. did it. And now I get up there and I, of course, feel ridiculous and embarrassed, but I'm like, my leg's not shaking. Yeah. I'm just like, all right, you know, let, let, plus I'm easing myself in. My teacher asked me if I wanted to have the band. I've never had the band before. And I was like, oh my God, first of all, people are going to think, I think I'm all that. The band's going to hate me. You, know? you are all that. That is a true statement. <laughs> But you know what I did? I asked my very best friend. He's like, is there anyone who will want to sing with you? And my best friend from when I was 15, we were singing Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. We used to be such nerds in high school that we would have Billy Fest, where we would go off and like play all Billy Joel songs all weekend. We used to play the song game, which was all Billy Joel songs. So you'd end on a word and you'd have to think of the next song that had that word. But it had, I mean, we're weird. And I was like, I love it. Medial to it. And so we're getting all of our girlfriends there, you know, to like do whatever. It's going to be so fun. It'll be fun, be so right? Yeah. You only live once. Exactly. And like, I've had those legs shaking moments where you're like, oh my God, how do I make it stop? Oh my God. Did that happen to you when you speak? I don't know it's how you not speak happen in when front I'm, of like I've Amazon. Had, I, so it hasn't happened with, um, when I was like in high school. Yes, it would happen to me speaking. But I also... um. I would black out and I still occasionally do like black like out, out of body experience. Like I get done and I'm like, I don't know what I said. Yeah. Like I'm, pr- I know I stayed on topic and I know I like was able to follow my mental outline, but like, I don't remember saying any of it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've had that, but my legs, the shaking legs has been um, with skiing. I learned how to ski at 42 and yeah. I've had that many times where, and it still happens if I go on black runs where I, like I'm real comfortable on blues, but I'm very convinced I'm going to die anytime I go on a black run yeah. and my legs immediately start to shake like uncontrollably. And it makes it way harder to ski when your legs are shaking. Uncontrollably. Yeah. I know when you're like, why I've had that happen when we do these team building things in corporate, like the ropes course, why oh, do they make you do this? Like you no put on the you. ugliest helmets, you look, don't look good. You have to climb up this high thing. And I had all these, I, my VP made us, you know, suggested as a fun team building thing, but I had all these people on our team who worked for me and my leg was shaking. Like, like I was terrified and I was like, you know, like technically you're standing on a platform. You're not going across the rope yet, but I apparently am afraid of heights. So, you know, it happens to be climbing rock walls too. I've had that experience on a ropes course that I did with my child and I had to come off of the ropes course. <laughs> Stop shaking. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one where I was like, wow, I was terrified. And I'm never fucking doing that again. Cause yeah. no, cause <laughs> I have my own self trust and I'm just going to be like, no. exactly. Like I'm really proud. I tried that did not bring me joy. Do not need to revisit it. <laughs> yeah. So people will be like, it'll be fun. I'm like, no. Yeah. Not doing it. Oh my All right. This was so fun. Anything else we haven't covered? I think that the last thing I want to say is that we can get really stuck in our stories. And a lot of times our stories come from the way we're, we're socialized. And so a lot of our sc- stories carry, and no matter your circumstances, a lot of our stories seem to carry guilt, shame, regret, resentment. I'm not enough. 
How can I be better? Everyone else has it figured out. And so I want everyone to give themselves permission and use this as an invitation to rewrite your story in a way that gives you power. And anyone can look back at their life and, and take away their own power. And anyone can look back at their life and give themselves power by doing that, knowing thyself, listening inward and recognizing that, oh, this is how I have power here. This is how I'm going to use this thing that was hard or scary or not successful and use that to give me power moving forward. So that's my, that's is my that the self-trust resume mm-hmm. or your courageous so, truth? Like, how do you do that? Give it to us quick. So, um, that, so the self-trust resume is a separate exercise. I didn't really okay. get into doing that, but, um, quickly the self, the, your cor- courageous truth is really simple. You take out a sheet of paper <laughs> and you just write down, make a list. And you can do this like in one sitting or like start it and then return to it a couple days later um, or maybe two or three times because you'll start to think about it and you'll be like driving somewhere and like, oh, yeah, I have to add that thing. So over the course of a few days, um, just write down all the times in your life that you've been courageous by choice or by chance. Mm-hmm. And then when you the list feels complete to you over the course of a f- few days or a week or whatever, then look at that list and look at like, what is the story that I can tell myself based on all of these truths? Because a lot of them are things we haven't thought about in forever, or we haven't revisited, or we haven't considered like, oh, like that plus that equals this. And so you can take those things and really own them to build a story that works for you versus oftentimes the narrative that we've created, this is a story or narrative that works against us. Yeah, yeah. And so for anyone listening to this, I want you to put on your you know, courageous moments uh questioning your relationship with alcohol and listening to this podcast and wow. anything else you've done. Lots of women have done, okay, I signed up for this group or I signed up for this program or I tried and then I drank again, but I learned and I'm still trying. Like all of those should go on your list because yes. they're really took- brave. Yes. Every time you try, it takes courage. Yeah. So you get, and there are so many, I have to tell you, there are so many, so many, so many people out there who are worried about their drinking and not taking these steps. So anytime someone writes to me or emails me or joins a group, I'm like, you are so fucking brave. You should be proud of yourself. Yes. 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 100%. All right. People are going to want to listen to your podcast because I adore it. And you've had the most amazing guests and the best conversation. So where can they find it? Where can they, you know, work with you? What types of work do you do? All that good stuff. Thank you for asking. So the podcast is the Shameless Mom Academy. You can listen wherever you're listening to this podcast on we're on every podcast platform. And then in terms of how I work with people, I do um, executive coaching, business coaching. And then I also do speaking and training inside organizations. And so for information on any of that, or just to reach out directly to me, you can go to saradeen.com. That's Sarah, S-A-R-A, no H, Dean, D-E-A-N.com. And you'll see information about how I'm supporting corporate people and individuals over there. That's awesome. And I want to thank you because you literally invited me on your podcast, which is huge when I hadn't even left corporate when I was just starting, you know, my website and coaching women and talking about quitting drinking. And since then, 
You have been a huge cheerleader for me and an advocate for me. And I can't tell you how much courage you've given me. Oh my gosh. I have loved, I mean, I say this all the time on social media, but I mean it so deeply. I have loved watching you grow. Like your success with your show and the way that you're working with women is just, it blows my mind. And it's such a great example of what can happen when you start listening inward and you tap into that intuition and you decide to take action. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so excited. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. I love this. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Casey. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more.